Well, good evening. You can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 4, where we left off two weeks ago, for we had our worship night, Soul Shelter, last week. Chapter 11, verse 4. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us well. For coming to this earth and dying on the cross for our sins. For living your life for us. That we might have newness of life. Dying in our place. That we might be forgiven of our sins. Making intercession on our behalf. Before the throne of God. Oh Lord God, and your promise to come again. It's what we hold on to. It's what we cling to in these dark days. Help us now as we open your word to be encouraged to be courageous and strong and brave in the face of a dark world. May we stand for you and be mighty men and women of faith. That we might glorify you with our lives and honor you with all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we're going to look at the conquest of Jerusalem and three of David's mighty men. Now, as we consider this, remember where we left off two weeks ago, David has just been made, at least according to Ezra's narrative, David has just been anointed king over all Israel. And the first account he tells us about the reign of David is David's conquering of Jerusalem. So I want to read that, uh, and then at least verses four through six, and then I'm going to make some, some comments about that. And then I want us to go through the next couple of verses, and then we're going to spend the rest of our evening dealing with the mighty men, the mighty men that David uh, recognized, those who were mighty in valor and mighty in battle. So let's uh, look at verses 4 through 6. David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is Jebus. The Jebusites who lived there said to David, you will not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. David had said, whoever leads the attack on the Jebusites will become commander-in-chief. Joab, son of Zariah, went up first, and so he received the command. So we find out how Joab got his job as the commander-in-chief of the army of Israel. But here we see that David conquered the city of Jerusalem. He made it his his capital. The, the, The idea is this. He wanted to crush the enemy that was within the boundaries of Israel. What David and his men did is they attacked the Jebusites. They captured the city. They needed to establish a new capital city to rule over the kingdom of Israel, which now included all of the northern tribes and the southern tribes. David had been king for seven years over the southern tribes, seven and a half years uh, of Judah and Benjamin, but now he was made king over all Israel. And so Judah's former capital in Hebron was far too south uh, to serve both Israel and Judah. And the former capital at Gibeah in Benjamin had been destroyed by the Philistines during the wars. So they needed a new capital, and Jerusalem was strategically located right on the border between Judah and Israel. And so the only problem was there was an enemy stronghold, and it was in this city in the heart of God's promised land. Now, when I look at this, I realize many times in our lives there is an enemy stronghold. 
There's some beachhead, there's some area of our lives, usually right at the heart of who we are, that we continue to resist giving over to God. We can have a stronghold in our lives and in our hearts that doesn't belong to God. Our lives technically belong to God, but there's this one area of our lives that we just refuse to surrender. It could be just trusting God with your health. It could be trusting God with your future. It could be trusting God with your finances. It could be some sin that you've allowed to take control of your life or some relationship that's unhealthy. There may be, in all of us, Areas that need to be surrendered and continually surrendered to God in this new year. I like what David did. He went right to the heart of the matter. He said, right in the center of God's promised land, there is a stronghold where the enemy dwells. We must take this city as our capital for a number of reasons. Yes, it was strategically located. Yes, it was right there on the border between the northern and southern kingdoms. But more importantly, taking this city would send a message to all of the enemies of God's people. If you could take the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, you send a message to every single enemy around you, don't mess with us. We trust God, we serve God, and God honors his word and he honors us because we honor him. David knew this significant victory would make all the difference in the world in the future. And so rather than just settling for some city that he could have conquered or set up his capital in or stay in Judah where he was perfectly safe, he ventured out and said, we're going to take that city. As long as it remained in enemy hands, Israel would always be defeated. And so he knew we need to take this city. Now, the Jebusites who lived in the city of Jerusalem were Canaanites. They had remained in Israel for the last 300 years. An enemy's stronghold in the center of Israel for 300 years. God was working amongst his people. All these things were happening. But right there in the center, there was this stronghold. And it had been there as long as they had been there. Now, the Israelites were never able to fully remove the Jebusites from the promised land. They tried, but they they weren't able to accomplish it. In fact, both Judah and Jerusalem, excuse me, both Judah and Benjamin had failed to take these Jebusites out of Jerusalem. They failed to dislodge them. They tried, but failed. Judah and Simeon had been victorious against the city of Jerusalem, and together they had conquered and burned a portion of the city, but the Jebusite stronghold still remained unconquered in what would become the city of David. So Jerusalem was the city that the Lord desired, and we know this, it was the city that the Lord desired to make Israel's capital. And like Israel, we all, every one of us, have areas in our lives that remain unconquered. So as we sort of go into this new year, I I want you to stop and think about one area, just one for tonight. You don't need a laundry list. One area that you would describe as an enemy stronghold in your life. Again, it could be fear, it could be lust, it could be not trusting God. It could be a lot of things, but you know in your life, what's the thing that you would like to see in this new year, that you would like to see yourself getting victory over in the power of the Spirit and conquering once and for all? And think about it, that's how David approached his enemy. He went right to the heart of the matter. So many times we skate around it and we deal with other issues, but we don't really deal with the heart of the matter. If we're honest with ourselves, we all have areas that need to be surrendered to God once and for all. Goliaths that need to to be taken down and beheaded. 
That's the kind of man that David was. And he's inspiring in that way because you, you have to think, what kind of people, you know, go for it like that? How many people actually just go for it like that? They say, you know what? Nothing's going to be right in my life until I surrender this very difficult area of my life to God. He said, nothing's going to be right in Israel until we conquer this city. And so, how do we do that? How do we deal with those areas of our lives? Well, we need a David. Well, we have the son of David, amen? We need a fellow countryman, a hero, an anointed king to deliver us, and we have that king in Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit who will perform that good work, who will conquer the enemy and do battle with him, and we can have the victory in Jesus Christ. But you have to be willing to surrender that area of your life, just like they had to be willing to go in and take the enemy. That we may once and for all Remove that which remains entrenched in our hearts to the service of God. That's my prayer for all of us going into this new year. Well, the Jebusites, the Jebusites, they were extremely confident, if you, did, if you noticed there. They were extremely confident that David would not be able to capture the city of Jerusalem. That's why they said to David in verse 5, you will not get in here. They felt that way. Nevertheless, David took the city. But Jerusalem was a walled city, and, and it was capable of repelling attacks from enemies on all sides. It was a difficult stronghold to take. Like I said, they had taken some portions of the city, but not the walled city, not the stronghold of the Jebusites. For 300 years, there they were in the center of God's promises. Now, these Jebusites may have been so overconfident that they mocked David's attempt to take the city by saying, what are you going to do? You're not going to get in here. We've been here so long. You're not going to be able to change things. You're not going to be able to conquer us. No one can conquer us. Maybe they were that overconfident. But I think that they were alluding to the fact that the men of the city would fight to the death. They weren't going to give up. So many enemies, when they reach a point where they're suffering a certain amount of losses, they'll sort of surrender. What these Jebusites are saying is, we're not going to surrender. You're not going to get in here. We're going to die keeping you from getting into this city. Some people would have been intimidated. Not David. Not David and Joab and the men of Israel. No, these men were heroes, and we're going to see that over the next couple weeks. There were many heroes in Israel at that time. David was but one of them. Joab was but one of them. There were many, and we'll look at three tonight. But what we see here is that despite all this, David did what they thought was impossible. He captured the fortress of Zion and the city of David. Why it's called the city of David? Because David took the city from the Jebusites. Now the Jebusites said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, which is an expanded portion of Scripture, has a little bit more information than this portion here in 1 Chronicles. They said something very interesting. And, and actually, I think I'm going to read it because it's very helpful to understand what was going on at that time. So, 2 Samuel, and you can turn there if you like. I'll read it for you if you don't want to turn there. But it's, uh, what did I say? 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, verse 6. There's an expanded account here. And in this account, they say something very interesting. That until recently, last couple of decades, we didn't really understand what it meant. Now we have a better insight because of archaeological discoveries. But what we learn there, it says, I'll just read the section, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites, and 
2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, who lived there. And the Jebusite said to David, you will not get in here. And notice, it gives us a little bit more information. It says, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. And of course, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. What are they talking about, the blind and the lame? Well, for a long time, people thought it was just them mocking them. But actually, we, we, we begin to understand a little bit more about the blind and the lame. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. The blind and the lame may describe an elite fighting force of the Jebusites, called the blind and the lame. Now, why were they called the blind and the lame? Well, the, destruct, the, the description praised their willingness to fight even after they were wounded. So even if they were maimed or even if they were blinded in the battle, they would continue to fight to the death. So they were called the blind and the lame. Now, some people felt that the reason they said, ah, even the blind and the lame could keep you out of that city, and they're just sort of mocking you. I mean, that's possible, but it makes a whole lot of sense. This makes a whole lot more sense, that there was this elite fighting force of the Jebusites that would fight to the death even if they were maimed, even if they were wounded, even if they were blinded. They would continue to fight. This description praised their willingness to fight even after being wounded. And of course, they had successfully guarded the city in the middle of God's promised land for hundreds of years. So clearly, they had an elite fighting force to protect the city. But David promised the position of commander-in-chief, as we read in First Chronicles, to the man that would lead the attack. Who's going to be the one to lead the men against this blind and the lame, against this, these elite fighting forces? Who are the ones that are going to go in there and take the city? For God and his people. Who, who are going to do that? Who's going to lead the attack? Well, we were told that Joab, son of Zariah, went up first and he received the command. Now, we read a lot about Joab in the accounts of David in 2 Samuel and also in 1 Chronicles. We, we learn a lot about this man, but it was David's nephew. David's nephew, Joab. Zariah is his sister. And so David's nephew, Joab, went up first and he received the command. Joab was then appointed commander-in-chief because of his bravery in battle. You know, we've read stories of men on the battlefield, and I imagine women as well, who are willing to stand up and lead, stand up and put themselves in harm's way in order to achieve the goal, in order to win the day. This position went to Joab because Joab led the attack. And, you know, when you have someone raise their sword and say, let's get him, more people are more likely to follow. But if the leader stands up and says, oh, I don't know, we could get COVID. I, I don't know. I mean, we might get hurt. I bruise easily. If the leader stands up, and says, let's take the city, there's a chance that people will follow him. But if the leader stands up and and, and says, well, we can't do that, someone might die. Something terrible might happen. Well, then you can expect those that follow not to follow that person into battle, for that person won't lead them. We have a dearth of courage and bravery today in our world. I think all of us could be encouraged to be a little bit braver with our lives as we follow the Lord and his leading. David and Joab were great examples of this. Well, we're told David captured the city. And by the way, back to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Again, this expanded account gives us a little bit more information. It's why I'm referring to it. In verse 8, it says, On that day, 
David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. See, it doesn't seem to indicate that, that he's referring to people who are actually lame and blind. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. So you see, this idea is that David knew a good way to take the city. And I, I like this because that means David not only used brute force, he used his head. He knew there was a way to sneak in the city and take out the elite fighting forces. And once they engaged them on their own ground, then they could take the whole city with all of their army. So they sent in an elite fighting force. They sent in their best fighters and they used the water shaft to get in. And once they got in, then they attacked these blind and lame. And they turned things around, turned the battle around and conquered the city. And that's what we learned between those two accounts. See, the guardians had to be dealt with before they could attack the city. It was the blind and the lame that were confidently stating, David will not enter the palace. Well, they did enter the palace. They did. And David established Jerusalem as the city of David and the capital of all Israel. Back in our text in verses 7 through 9, it says, David then took up residence in the fortress, and so it was called the city of David. He built up the city around it from the supporting terraces to the surrounding wall while Joab restored the rest of the city and David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. Amen? See, David was able to go into battle in the power and the strength of the Lord, but he trusted God, which is what made him a force to be reckoned with. He trusted God. And so he relocated his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem, continued to reinforce the city. And Joab assisted David by restoring the rest of the city. They worked together to build this capital up. David clearly knew that the Lord was the source of his strength and his power. So as we talk about taking the stronghold, dealing with the strongholds in our own lives, you have to know that the Lord is the source and the strength. He is the source of your power and your strength. He is the one that will do the work. You can't do the work in your own strength. You only see victory in your life when you surrender your life to the Lord and ask him to be victorious. But you have to surrender your life to him and ask him to give you the victory through the power of the Spirit over the enemies that occupy your heart. See, it's an act of surrender more than it is anything else, but it takes bravery, it takes courage. And so as we look at that, let's remember what we're learning here. As it, as it says, and as we read in verse 9, David became more and more powerful. How did that happen? Because the Lord Almighty was with him. That is, brothers and sisters, how we are victorious in Christ. When the Lord is with us. Okay, so staying on that theme of battle and heroes, we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at some of, there are many, but just some of the heroes that were among David's mighty men. As we look at just a few verses here in verses 10 through 14, and we're going to look at 2 Samuel again because some of uh, what uh, should be included here isn't included by Ezra. He only mentions two of the three mighty of mighties, okay, the mightiest of men. Um, and the third is mentioned in 2 Samuel. So we'll go there for the third. But for now, let's look at verse 10. And I love looking at these because this is like, these are warriors. These are accounts that tell us about guys that we're really brave and courageous and victorious in battle. And they're inspiring. Look what it says here in verse 10. These were the chiefs of David's mighty men. 
they, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had promised. This is the list of David's mighty men. Let's just stop a minute. There were three leaders. Now, only two were mentioned in this passage, but there were three. There were three that were leaders of all David's mighty men. They were the three that were in charge of David's elite fighting force. And no doubt they were involved in this attack on Jerusalem in many ways. But their strong support of David, along with all Israel, enabled him to conquer the whole land, not just the city, the whole land. The Lord had promised that David would succeed in conquering the whole land, and indeed he did. Can you trust God's promises? Let me hear you say amen. Amen. David trusted in God's promises. He was a man after God's own heart. He believed God and took him at his word, and he went out bravely in the strength and the power of the Lord to accomplish all that God had called him to do. You don't have to wonder whether or not God wants you to surrender your whole heart to him. That much is clear in the scriptures. God wants your whole heart. And he will strengthen you. He will empower you to be able to do that work. If you give your heart to him. Well, the first we read of is in verse 11. It says, Jashobim, a Hakmonite, was chief of the officers. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed in one encounter. It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. This man, Jashobim, or Jashed Bahashabeth, was chief of the three. The three. These were the top guys, okay? And David's mightiest warriors. And this man was the mightiest of the mighty. Jashobim means, in the original language, a dweller among the people, or to whom the people turn. And he, he may have been a foreigner. It seems that he may not have even been an Israelite. But he was a mighty man who served David and served the Lord's people. Now, the word that's also used to describe him, Yashid Bashibeth, means dwelling in rest, or literally, the Tachomanite that sat in the seat. So they must have had a seat of honor that this man sat in, and he's a Tachomanite. He was from somewhere else. But this man was so mighty in battle that he was the mightiest of the mighty of David's mighty men. He's also called... Adino the Esnite in some Hebrew and, and, and Septuagint manuscripts. So there's a, a myriad of different names that he's called, but all these things that, that, that are written about him all have one thing in common. He's famous for killing a lot of guys in battle. In fact, here it says that he killed 300 men. But in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8, it says he killed 800 men. Now, the, one of the problems with the book of 1 Chronicles is there does seem to be a lot of copying errors because of when it was written and that many of the sources were, were not even in existence or were badly damaged by the time it was written. But in either case, 300 or 800, whatever the case may be, it's a lot of people. And what it makes me think of is Samson. I remember Samson. He killed a 1,000 Philistines in one encounter in Judges 15. And Joshua Beam was a man like this who went out in the strength and the power of the Lord and took out anyone who came up against him. So you could see why he was considered among the three, and among the three, he was considered the chief of the three. Okay, then we get to verses 12 through 4. And here we learn about a man named Eliezer. And let's read it, verses 12 through 14. Next to him, this is the second of the three. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahahite, one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pastamon when the Philistines gathered there for battle, at a place where there was a field full of barley. 
the troops fled from the Philistines. So you see, everyone ran away. But they took their stand in the middle of the field, and they defended it and struck down the Philistines. So you see, he was there with David. He was right there with David. And they took their stand in the middle of the field and, and defended it from the, and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. So while Joshua Beam was able to take out hundreds of men, these guys were considered mighty, David and Eliezer, because they stood their ground. They stood their ground. You know what is so depressing to me? When Christians cave. When Christians cave. They don't stand up for what they know to be true. That, that, that's the worst thing. They flee from the Philistines. The Philistines represent the world and the worldliness of the world and all the things that we stand against. And so many people, they waffle, they cave, they don't stand for what they believe in. Not Eliezer. Eliezer was second of the three. His name means God has helped or whom God aids. Again, that same concept of God was with him. God was with him. Just like God was with David and Yashabim and Joab and all the mighty men, God was with him. And he was famous for bravely standing his ground and refusing to run from the Philistines. God has to give us some courage to stand for righteousness in these dark days. These men are inspirational to that end. He struck them all down after everyone else had retreated. In fact, he defended their food supply. You see, they were in this field of barley, and that would have been the food that they needed to eat. If they didn't stand their ground, the Philistines would have come in and either burned their crops or taken their food. Well, he defended the food supply, and even after everyone else retreated, he would not retreat. It makes me think of Jonathan and his armor bearer, who courageously killed 20 Philistines. Remember that when they went up, it was in First Samuel chapter 14. They went up and Samuel, uh, and, excuse me, Jonathan in First Samuel said to his armor bearer, if God's going to do the work, he can do it by many or few or even just you and me. So let's go up there and let's take out these Philistines. So they climb up and they get into a melee and they, they win the day. And the other fighters and soldiers see these guys and they think, you know what? If Jonathan and his armor bearer can take out 20 guys, I can take out 20 guys. So many times battles are won with courage. It really comes down to courage. And I think that's true today. The spiritual battle we're in requires a spiritual strength, but it requires a spiritual courage. Because if you don't stand your ground, if you're too willing to retreat, how are you going to be victorious over sin? How are you going to be victorious over this world and its wickedness? you don't stand your ground. This is one of those huzzah messages, you know. So I am just, I love reading the accounts of World War II, even World War I, some of the battles like the Civil War and the American Revolution. I, I've read a lot over the years and you read these accounts and you, one, one guy, you know, one guy refused to, to back down and they won the day because one or two people just Refuse to back down. Inspiring, inspirational. I like those uh, movies, you know, the movies about war. I was watching Midway. One it was a recent uh, film called Midway, and I was watching that, and I'm like, man, just so cool, the Navy and how they won that battle and how these guys refused to back down. And maybe you've watched, you know, Guadalcanal Diaries or something. You know, you watch these movies and you see the difference between those who have courage and those that are cowards. 
And you want to be counted among those who are brave and stand their ground, right? You want to be that person that is famous for running the other way. They used to shoot deserters, especially in the Civil War. Someone ran the other way. The reason they shot them is because (laughs) they had to send a message to the other troops. Don't run that way. You'll get shot. And then not only that, but if one ran, then another would run. Pretty soon everyone would run. Not this guy. Not Eliezer, the second of the three. And then finally we get to the third of the three. And while this section of First Chronicles uh, mentions three, it, it doesn't give us the account. It's sort of omitted. It wasn't included here. But fortunately for us, it is included in Second Samuel and in chapter 23. So I'm going to turn over there to Second Samuel 23 and read what uh, clearly should have been included by Ezra, but wasn't. Uh, but we do have it in God's word. The third of the three. Second Samuel, you can turn there if you like, 23, verse 8. We're told of the last of these three. It's actually in uh, 23, verses 11 through 12. Next to him, that would be Eliezer, who was mentioned in the previous verses, who we just talked about, was Shema, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them, but Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. It's another one, another encounter. This, this time it was lentils instead of barley, but still their food source, right? Still a brave man was willing to stand up for what he believed in God's people, even if it cost him his life. Now his name means desolation or astonishment. And he is not included in First Chronicles 23, but fortunately we have his account here in Second Samuel. He was famous for bravely standing his ground, refusing to run, just like Eliezer. He single-handedly defended their food supply after everyone else defeated, uh, was defeated and everyone else retreated. And I think about the fact that he rivaled David, who courageously defended Israel from the taunts of Goliath of Gath. Now, I can't give you courage. I can't get up here, you know, like halftime locker room speech and pump you guys up and then, we, you know, hit our helmets and, you know, run out there onto the field. I can't do that. But what I can do is tell you that there are victories to be had in the kingdom of God if men and women who are brave and courageous are willing to take them. Now, our victories may not necessarily be going out there with swords and lopping people's heads off, but there's victories, political victories, cultural victories, victories of conscience, not to mention victories in our own lives. There are opportunities out there to honor God and live for him and be inspirational to others. But I can promise you, if you stay at home and are afraid or don't stand your ground when you know better, you will never, ever experience those victories. There were only three in this elite group that are mentioned here. Each and every one of us should strive to be at that level in our faith as we serve God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you inspire us from your word, that you give us examples, not just David and Joab, but these three men and others throughout the Bible, these examples for us to follow. 
Lord, may we honor you. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. May we live our lives for you. May, may we live our lives in a way that's inspirational to others. And may we be strong and courageous for you. Told Joshua, be strong and courageous. He's not the only one. You told many men and women throughout history to be strong and courageous. Lord, make us strong. Make us courageous. Help us to stand our ground in this dark world. Help us to live our lives for you, to bring you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.